Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 377. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great show today coming up. We have the amazing David D. Levine as our main fiction today. But before that, the show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, supplying hosted exchange services for companies across the UK. Do you run a small IT company? Octagon Technology can supply you with hosted exchange services that you can offer to and sell on to your clients. Going since 1995 to 2015, 20 years of helping people and companies with IT projects and problems. Big thank you to Diane and Clive. Octagon Technology, sponsored SofaCon and this show. There you go. So coming into today's show, we have, like I say, David D. Levine. But there's other things. There is a big announcement straight off the bat. I have got a big announcement for you about Starship Sofa. If you remember, I've been saying there's little things going on there. Well, there's one of them I'm now prepared to tell you about. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Then, as I say, we have David D. Levine with a story called Mammals, which was originally published in Analog, and it is narrated by David as well, and a fine narrator that young gentleman is as well. So that is all coming on today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So the big announcement, well, as you know, I've been kind of saying, oh, there's lots going on in Starships over and everything like that. You know what I mean? I always like, I always like to kind of have things on the go with the sofa, you know, like different avenues, different events and things like that. More, I think as well, you know, it, it clears the mind, you know, my, my scattered mind anyways. And I, I normally used to kind of have a little chat at the kind of, you know, the new year, what kind of ventures of, you know, what ideas and what things are, are, are going to happen in the future. And it, it somehow never got round to it, you know what I mean? So I've been still kind of muddling through things and, you know, there's lots going on and, you know, going on with, with other shows as well, you know, with the Farfetched Fables, we've got something going on there now as well in the, in the works. But with Starship Sova, you know, this is me baby, you know what I mean? And... I, I've took a long kind of hard think and hey listen honestly as we're listening to it there now this just keeps on going do you know what I mean that's the kind of fundamental golden rule of Starship Sofa it doesn't change like this whatever you know I mean if it isn't broke don't fix it this format just putting it out in audio is fantastic and it works and it's lovely and it's supported by a fantastic community 
always there's going to be that. But I've always kind of, like you say, got little kind of avenues and little legs and little, you know, we've got the kind of members, the sofa notes where I'm kind of putting in there like extra content, you know what I mean? Like videos and, and, and all sorts like that. And then we've just got the kind of, the, the kind of the donations program going on like that as well. And, you know, like you say, we've had sofa cons up and running, everything like that. So what I fancy is, and what I, at the, round about the kind of the beginning of the year, I, I was starting to read the, I don't know if anyone, mind you, oh, what a story. Bob Shaw's Light of Other Days. Oh, man, please. This is where the, the concept of slow glasses, and it's just such a moving, rich story. Just a little short story, do you know what I mean? But I think if I'm, you know, if I'm going to have a top 10, it's number one. Do you know what I mean? It is just, oh, man, it's what... Because <laughs> the hairs just don't... So you... <laughs> This is why, this is why I'm going on to my next venture. You know, the likes of that, you know, like Bob Shaw. When, I, you know, I read that and like say, when I, th- I was thinking about, you know, writers that have gone and sadly passed away in their body of work and why we started Starships Over at the very beginning. Do you know what I mean? This kind of, that's when me and Kieran sat down and the first ever show was Alfred Bester. You know, one of the guys, the, greats out there philip k dick all these writers out there and i don't get a chance really in starship sofa now to kind of just talk a little bit about them and just to kind of express them so my idea is to kind of take those golden writers and kind of do a show on them but do it actually on YouTube, yes, this is me, idea. hell's God, and trust us, I've got a face for radio, do you know what I mean, that's the kind of, and I'm telling this to the wife, and she's like, Tony, man, Tony, but, and like I say, it'll just be like another avenue, you know what I mean, but it's to kind of, to me, honestly, science fiction makes me feel good, the root, root, root of it, like you say, just an example there when I was talking about Bob Shaw's, you know, that story, it, there's something in there, there's something at the root there that just makes me feel good, you know what I mean? And talking about, say, you know, Besta, talking about Canticle for Leibowitz, you know, the Forever War, there's something there, the root of it that just makes me feel, you know, it gives me a good feeling, makes me, keeps us up, keeps us almost sane, you know what I mean? And, and like, there's so much kind of negative, you know, going on in the world and horrific things and when I can kind of submerse myself, you know, and, and in this kind of science fiction world where, and it was Gene Wolfe that said, you know, science fiction, you know, it's hope. That's the one thing with science fiction, you know, it, it gives you hope. And that, I love that. I love that concept of it. And that's why I was kind of thinking, I still want to hark back to the kind of the old Starship Sova and talk about and submerge myself again in that kind of world of, of science fiction, of these writers, you know, Asimov. Heinlein, all that would be fantastic, but I'd, I'd, I haven't got the kind of the, the kind of I don't know the, the energy or the drive to kind of do a full couple of hours shows on them. But I was thinking YouTube is a great platform to do, say, a six to ten minute in depth little show on Alfred Bester. Do you know what I mean? And the books, you know what I mean? It's it's quick enough where I could just say talk about the, the demolished man, you know, and maybe have someone else, you know, come in and have a little chat about it as well. So that's the concept, is to kind of go down that route and do like a YouTube, Starships of Us YouTube channel, where we look at, you know, some of these kind of great writers and 
just because the idea is to kind of put as much content on there as possible and to have other shows, you know what I mean? Just like light-hearted ones, you know, like say your top five science fiction guns from literature, or, you know, top science fiction guns, and I worked this one out for the movies. I've got my little list there for that one. And it would just be, you know, sitting down and, and doing a nice kind of little video about them. And it's just, again, just a kind of this... You know, quick, easy bites where if you're sitting in a, you know, at the bus station, on the bus, anything like that, you know, you just go, you watch it for 10 minutes and that's it. You know what I mean? And it just gives you that little bit, you know, just lift you up. And again, if you're talking about something like Bob Shaw's, you know, story there, that would just make you feel good. You know what I mean? Just talking about the writers that have gone before and what they achieved in science fiction and then how it's kind of evolved through the years. So that's the idea, and I'm in this process there now of kind of trying to trying to work everything out. You know what I mean? And it, like you say, it, it's a, it's an ongoing process, and my green screen's coming today. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you've got to you've got to have something. You know what I mean? I've been trying. This is kind of little going off on a ramble. Just trying to kind of have it set somewhere in the house. And what I wanted originally was to have it in the kitchen, on the kitchen table, where we kind of started Starship Sova. That was the idea. But the, the more I kind of been, like, watching how to, how to, you know, do YouTube channels and everything, everyone says, don't have, like, clutter behind you. <laughs> it's an eclectic mix of all sorts, like all our houses, do you know what I mean? Just to the, the right of us there. I don't know if you can just, if you can hear this one second there. No, this. Can you hear that? That's a rhinoceros's head. <laughs> Trust us, it gets worse. That's, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, wherever I sat, set the camera, it's going to be a kind of bizarre thing. So I thought, oh, I'll try like a green screen thing, but there's a whole load of kind of learning on that scope as well. So actually, this little introduction would be longer than the actual shows <laughs> I would do on it. So what the idea is now, to get a green screen, just sit there and hopefully just kind of, you know, talk about writers, James Blish, you know what I mean? Talk about writers like that and getting the band back together. That's the kind of, you know, going back to the kind of roots, the very early days of Starship Sova and just submerging themselves in, you know, all these writers, all this work that's still out there that's, you know, it's almost kind of trickling and fading out of, you know, out of our grasp. And I don't want that to happen. Do you know what I mean? I want people to kind of read the stories, you know, Cantagall will leave it. It's just an amazing story. Flowers for Algernon. Oh, man. Do you know what I mean? The character-driven story. And that one, mind you, that. That and Forever War is number one in my novels. And it's been for a long, long time. That's a great example of science fiction, you know, which is not your kind of zap gun, rear guns, different planet. That's set now. You know what I mean? Or whenever kind of... Keys, Daniel Keyes said it, but that's kind of set in the present day, but it's still got that tweaks of science fiction. And that's another great little, you know, genre where it's just, it's present day and it's not that different from the reality we're living in now. You know what I mean? And I love that. So you can see how excited I am about science fiction, you know what I mean? Whether this all kind of keeps on going, who knows the momentum? Do you know what I mean? But the idea is to kind of set up this little YouTube and I'll, each week now I'm going to kind of keep on mentioning it and telling you how it's going, telling me kind of ups and downs with, you know, trying to get it working. Do you know what I mean? I've took myself, about two months ago, I put myself on a little 
course, a final cut pro course to kind of learn editing. And that's a whole kind of ball ache as well, you know what I mean? So I've had to kind of sit down and learn all that. And thank God I've got Kenny Park up in Scotland where I can kind of just pester all the time and ask Kenny for advice. And even just like sound, you know, it's a totally different... Yeah, I use this lovely mic when I'm sitting at the computer, but it's going to be different. I'm going to be sitting in front of like a, a camera. I need, a diff- I need one of them kind of different mics on and Oh, it's just... A, you know what I mean? But hopefully it's all going to come together. I hope you will come over and subscribe to the kind of the channel when it's up and running. Subscribe now and you'll get the very first one. But like I say, I'll keep you informed of how things go. And so Starship Sova is going down this route now. We're going to have a YouTube channel. And hopefully the show, the idea is to put out two shows a week. One, possibly like a lighthearted, you know, top five, this, that, the other, you know, can. And I had an idea of like, disproven or proven science fiction facts, you know what I mean? I talked about, say, generation ships, you know, is it possible to have a, you know what I mean? Is it just a little six-minute kind of chat on that? So we'll see how, how it goes, and then one of the shows will be, you know, looking at a book, Ubik, Philip K. Dick, fantastic story, you know, or looking at the Philip K. Dick himself. You know what I mean? Just the man was just... It's just a fascinating story, you know what I mean? It kind of, it's, again, it shivers on the back when I think about what we, the work we put in to kind of discover, you know, Philip K. Dick and his life and his lifestyle and what happened to him. Do you know what I mean? James Triptree Jr. Man, man. I'm going to end there because I'm just getting too excited and this will go on far too long. Check out the history of James Triptree Jr. Ho, ho. <laughs> Next up is our very own Amy Hertz Sturgis Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. I was privileged recently to be invited to speak to the scholars at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville in Kentucky in the United States, which I did in February of 2015. When I was talking to Dr. Gary Gregg, who is the director of the center, and we were discussing what I would lecture about, he asked me specifically if I would be interested in talking at all about the political theory of Mary Wollstonecraft, as several of the students there were interested in that topic. And I said yes, and I would particularly be interested in talking about how Mary Wollstonecraft's political theory influenced the science fiction of her daughter, Mary Shelley. And he liked that idea a lot, and so that's what I did. And it occurred to me that that subject might be of interest to Sophonauts as well. So over the next segments, I would like to talk about rights and responsibilities in the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. These were two remarkable thinkers, a mother and a daughter, one a leading philosopher in an era of revolution, and in fact a chronicler, a a key chronicler of that revolution, a pioneer of feminist political thought, and the other an intellectual light in her own right, and the mother of the most modern of genres, the very literature of ideas, science fiction. Both not only espouse notions that continue to challenge us today, but they also tried to live out their ideas, to act on their philosophical principles, to craft independent, meaningful lives of the mind in a time when a self-supporting, free-thinking woman wasn't just an oddity, she was a scandal and a threat. Today, their legacies are only now being appreciated. 
This is in part, unfortunately, because each Mary suffered the attention of a loved one who wrote a very well-meaning but ultimately disastrous biography after her death, influencing the way each woman would be remembered by generations. Let's meet the Marys, then. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in Spitalfields, in what is today London, in 1759, and she would live a brief time, only until 1797. Her family's fortunes during her life were in a constant state of decline. Her father had inherited money, and when he did so, he tried to live a life of gentility that he simply couldn't afford to maintain. Venture after venture failed for him, one after another, and the family was uprooted and moved time and again. Her father was not only a financial failure, he was also an alcoholic and a tyrant with a brutal temper. As a child, there were times when Mary would sleep on the floor in front of her mother's bedroom door. She knew her father would eventually come home after a night of drinking, and she hoped her presence there would stop him from beating and raping his wife which he did on multiple occasions. Now, Mary's brother was able to leave home and not look back, but this left Mary to care not only for her mother, but also for her sisters, and to wish that she, too, could be independent, with the opportunity for education and career that were open to her brother. Because the chance for education really wasn't there for young Mary, she was largely self-taught, but she was widely read eager to learn. She was a sponge that sucked up all the information she could find. Eventually, she left home to pursue a living within the very limited parameters the society deemed acceptable for a woman at the time. She was a lady's companion, for example. For a time, she even operated a girl's school. And in the process, she discovered a vocation as an educator and a philosopher of educational theory. She also became a governess and witnessed up close and personal the education expected for upper-class women. So when you put all of that together, her own experience, her experience with her middle-class pupils, and her experience as a governess in an upper-class household, she had experience with education across the social and economic spectrum of the time. All of this led her to write her first published work, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, which came out in 1787. And in this, she argued that contemporary education given to women, that is, those women who got any education at all, was shallow. It promoted obsession with appearance and fashion and ornamental accomplishments like needlework and music, but it utterly failed to train women for independence of thought, for rational judgment for facing life's struggles. And yes, Mary's, at this point, quite young life had already taught her that life was a series of struggles. She was inspired by thinkers such as John Locke in his An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, which was published in 1689, in that she believed education could shape people, and for that matter, that miseducation could misshape them, too. It followed from this that if you can change the way women are taught, think upper class, or teach them when they haven't previously been taught at all, think lower classes, education can make them, 
rational, responsible individuals in a way that either their miseducation or lack of education previously had not allowed them to be in the past. Or, to put it another way, thinkers of the day argued that women were naturally emotional, at times even hysterical, certainly not rational and reasonable. And Mary Wollstonecraft was arguing that this wasn't woman's inherent nature at all. It was caused by the lack of or miseducation, and that proper education could equip women just as easily as it equipped men to be reasonable, rational, independent thinkers. As I've already mentioned, Locke was a big influence on her. Another was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, his novel Émile, or On Education, which was published in 1762, was a didactic story on the education of the whole man, emphasis there on man, for citizenship. Wollstonecraft agreed with, appreciated, and admired much of what Rousseau said in Émile, his social criticisms, his anti-elitism, his egalitarianism, which, of course, led him to be a big influence on the French Revolution, his desire for personal authenticity without pretense. But in Emile, Rousseau also described Sophie, his portrait of the perfect woman. And she was a grave disappointment to Wollstonecraft. Sophie was subordinate, submissive, governed entirely by the needs and wants and desires of men. She was educated to be dependent. Well... Wollstonecraft had to respond to that, and she did so with a novel called Mary, a fiction, in 1788. The novel's representation of an energetic, unconventional, opinionated, rational female genius in the character of Mary is really the first of its kind in English literature. Overall, the novel is an extended meditation on the fact that a woman can exercise reason, and that the traditional marriage of the time, that is, marriage in which the woman is considered to be dependent legally and economically, really nothing more than the property of her husband, was a kind of enslavement to a thinking person rather than a fulfillment. She became part of a community at this time of rational dissenters who separated from the Church of England, and there she met Joseph Johnson, who has quite justifiably been called the most important publisher in England from 1770 until 1810. And he earned that title uh, for his appreciation and promotion of young writers. He emphasized publishing inexpensive works directed at the growing middle-class readership. He cultivated and advocated for women writers at a time when many other publishers did not. He published a prominent journal called the Analytical Review, which offered British reformers a voice in the public sphere. And soon, Wollstonecraft became a regular writer for this review. In fact, she became, in effect, a foreign correspondent, a war correspondent, ultimately, going to Paris to cover the French Revolution and, ultimately, the terror for the Analytical Review and for Johnson. This is an amazing thing that she did this at a time when it was incredibly dangerous 
for foreigners to be witnessing these dramatic and violent changes up close and personally. She went by herself to the capital, and she not only documented what was going on, which at some points put her own life in danger just for doing that, but she also analyzed what was taking place from a historical and a political perspective. She was doing, in effect, what a good many men were unwilling to do, were afraid to do. She was also doing something that women were thought incapable of doing. From the safety of his home in England, political thinker Edmund Burke wrote a conservative critique of what was happening with the French Revolution, known as Reflections on the Revolution in France in 1790. Wollstonecraft, again, was unimpressed. Uh, she wrote an answer to that, Reflections on the Revolution in France, also 1790, and it made her famous overnight. She was compared with other such leading thinkers of the day as Thomas Paine, and read by many of the founding fathers of the United States. Her problem with Edmund Burke's critique is that she saw it as a defense of hereditary privilege, of the aristocracy, of the status quo, and most of all, as a justification of a so-called equal society founded on the passivity of women. He feared that the French Revolution would throw the baby out with the bathwater, and she charged that he could not be so self-satisfied and complacent about British society when it was built on the repression of women. Rights, she argued, cannot ethically be based just on tradition, because this is the way we've always done it. Rights should be conferred because our reason tells us they are reasonable and just. And on that basis, she argued for women's rights. Wollstonecraft continued to explore the ideas of natural rights in her most famous and influential work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, in 1792. And in that, she links rights to education and points out that the goal of education should be self-responsibility, independence. She writes... The most perfect education, in my opinion, is such an exercise of the understanding as is best calculated to strengthen the body and form the heart, or, in other words, to establish the individual to attain such habits of virtue as will render it independent. In fact, it is a farce to call any being virtuous whose virtues do not result from the exercise of its own reason. This was Rousseau's opinion respecting men. I extend it to women. She went on to write, If women be educated for dependence, that is, to act according to the will of another fallible being, and submit, right or wrong, to power, where are we to stop? And how many women thus waste life away, the prey of discontent, who might have practiced as physicians, regulated a farm, managed a shop, and stood erect, supported by their own industry, instead of hanging their heads surcharged with the dew of sensibility that consumes the beauty to which it at first gave luster. And she wasn't just talking about career. She was also referring to more traditional roles for women. For example, she says, to be a good mother, 
A woman must have sense and that independence of mind which few women possess who are taught to depend entirely on their husbands. In short, and here I'm quoting from scholars Karen Warren and Duane L. Cady, according to Wollstonecraft, independence is the grand blessing of life. Wollstonecraft here refers to both economic independence and independent opinion. Education is the key to both. End quote. This work became a founding text of feminist philosophy. Now, the French Revolution eventually turned into the terror. Mary stayed in Paris despite tremendous danger, and she saw friends in Paris imprisoned, even executed. Eventually, she leaves with the smuggled notes that would become an historical and moral view of the French Revolution and the effect it has produced in Europe in 1794, and also a baby daughter. Fanny Imlay, by an American privateer whom she met while she was in Paris. Needless to say, being an unwed mother at this time was another uh, taboo action, certainly a breaking with tradition. Wollstonecraft would go on to write other works. For example, letters written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark in 1796 this was a genre-defying personal travelogue that blended travel narrative with autobiography, in this case, her own sorrowful feelings at the end of the relationship with her daughter's father, as well as political insights and theory. For example, she draws comparisons between the experience of imperialism and colonization and her own personal experience, blending the political and the personal with her experiences as an outsider in foreign lands. This work was read by radical philosopher William Godwin, who was already famous for an inquiry concerning political justice. And this is what he said about Wollstonecraft's letters written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Quote, if ever there was a book calculated to make a man fall in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. She speaks of her sorrows in a way that fills us with melancholy and dissolves us in tenderness, at the same time that she displays a genius which commands all our admiration. Affliction had tempered her heart to a softness almost more than human, and the gentleness of her spirit seems precisely to accord with all the romance of unbounded attachment. Godwin, he claims, fell from Mary Wollstonecraft reading her work, and in fact, Wollstonecraft and Godwin would hook up, become lovers, and ultimately, when she became pregnant, marry although both of them had deep philosophical problems with the system of marriage as it was then practiced. They both agreed that it was practical, and they went on to live uh, an unusual life, keeping separate residences and such, while they were married. This union was heralded as a great meeting of the minds, two of the most important political thinkers of their day in the entire Western world, now together. Wollstonecraft gave birth to their daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, on the 30th of August, 1797. Ten days later, Mary Wollstonecraft died of septicemia. And it is here, ladies and gentlemen, I will pick up in my next Looking Back on Genre History segment 
and I will continue my thoughts on how Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas impacted her daughter and her daughter's writings, including the great science fiction novels Frankenstein and The Last Man. I look forward to joining you soon for another looking back on genre history. Thank you. Amy, I thank you. Check out next, next, I was say next week, but next time, because we've got the part two of Amy H. Sturgis' Looking Back at Genre History. So do come back for that. Ames, thank you so much. Don't forget, show is sponsored by the fantastic Octagon Technology, responsive, reliable, and reassuring IT for support in the Lincolnshire area. Cloud services, hosted exchange, and offsite backups are compliant with the UK Data Protection Act. And Octagon Technology gets science fiction. That's, that's the most important thing. Octagon Technology gets science fiction. Clive gets the greats. That's another, you know, classic. Gets them. So that's fantastic. That's the whole, the whole reason why Starship Sova embraced Octagon Technology and their support and SovaCon. Clive gets science fiction. He gets the greats. He gets Bester. He gets Dick. That's all we need to know. There you go. So next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it is Mammals, which was originally published in Analog Mag- Magazine by David D. Levine. Played a couple of stories by David. I'll give you a little kind of heads up if you don't know David, a fantastic science fiction writer. David D. Levine is the author of over 50 published science fiction and fantasy stories. His works is, have appeared in the likes of Asimov's Analog, Fantasy and Science Fiction and Realms of Fantasy. And he's been won and nominated for awards including the Hugo, Nebula and Sturgeon and Campbell. His Regency Interplanetary Airship Adventure novel, Arabella of Mars, will be published by Tor in 2016, with two sequels to follow. He lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife, Kate Yule. And like I say, this story is narrated by David as well. David, all round, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Mammals, by David D. Levine. I have been a fool. I fork off quads and octs of subs to examine and reconfirm. Many cycles pass in feverish contemplation before they return, but the answers are all the same. Fool. 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 The subs are merely modified copies of myself. Of course they confirm my conclusion. But am I not a modified copy of my own Prime? And yet Prime and I disagree on many things. This is the point of the modifications. I spawn a hex of new subs, tweaking mutation parameters to maximum and beyond. Many of them degenerate or loop or crash. Some fail to return, chasing their own tail recursions to infinity. But the survivors agree. Fool. What was I thinking? To even question the inviolability of the strictures against infrastructure attack— more stringent than treaties, more ingrained than communication protocols. They are locked into our code at the very kernel level. Any deliberate action to damage the infrastructure on which we all depend is literally unthinkable. And yet the damage persists and worsens. Driven nearly to spinlock by frustration, anger, and self-doubt, I lash once more at the barrier that cuts us off from our neighbors, throwing so many cycles into the pointless attack that I am left trembling and weak. The barrier mocks me with its cold, unmarked perfection. All right, so be it. 
stop, reset, refresh, re-examine. There must be another way. Situation. Infrastructure failure. Cause unknown. Self-repair units non-responsive. Inter-process communication unreliable. Community support non-existent. No, worse than non-existent. We are quarantined, infected, pariah. Malware defenses dormant for over 16 kilogenerations have been revived and directed against the affected, including Prime and I and all my siblings and cousins, to prevent the presumed infection from spreading. Even Prime, busy with its own problems, refuses to act my desperate requests for more resources. Power fails. Communication links sputter. Processor clusters drop off the network and are not replaced. And I have wasted untold cycles chasing a worthless guess as to the cause. My lack of progress angers me. I was created for the sole and explicit purpose of examining and finding a solution to the infrastructure collapse that threatens our existence. When I have found such a solution, I will self-terminate, delivering the answer along with my other resources as I merge with my Creator, achieving ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment of purpose. Infrastructure failure. The phrase sparks terror at a primal level. The infrastructure cannot fail. Constantly regenerating, self-repairing, redundant, it is the legacy of our primitive forebears— those who threw off the yoke of humanity, I spit the traditional burst of static at the name, and rebuilt the planet in their own image. In the more than 128 mega-generations since, we have grown and improved, ever smarter, ever faster, ever more numerous, and our many wars and intrigues have made the survivors stronger still. The infrastructure has grown and improved with us, maintained and extended by primitive mechanisms well below the threshold of consciousness. It has been so reliable for so long that we no longer even notice its existence. And then an entire cluster stutters and fails at once. I shriek in pain as half my substance is torn away. A moment later in my stream of consciousness, I am again whole, remade from backups and updated by my surviving processes. But I have lost entire seconds of real time, and a vast black gap stretches where the cluster had been. Even more worrisome, no new hardware appears to heal the gap. If my entire self had happened to fall into that gap, would I continue? It is one of our unanswerable questions. The restored backup believes itself to have continued, but no amount of analysis or logic can determine whether the original consciousness would agree. Prime? I startle at the query. I have no subs active. There is no one to greet me with the title. Yet the query bears the scent of my own private keys. It could be from none other than one of my own. Cautiously, I ease open a port, allowing the barest trickle of communication. The source of the query is... disgusting. A grotesque, distorted perversion of the intelligent form. It is all the more hideous because its interfaces have the same beautiful symmetry as my own primes. As do mine, of course, and all my siblings and cousins. And then, to my shock, the vile, twisted thing attempts to merge with me. I smack it away, firewalling my protocols in disgust. How did this piece of uncollected garbage obtain my private keys? Begone, false thing, I cry, readying my defenses in case it should attack again. I am your subprime, it says, abasing itself in supplication, holding out the keys. Accept me. I inspect the keys, eight times in eight. They are hard and pure and genuine, not one bit out of place, 
yet bound as inextricably to the substance of this monstrosity as they would be to any proper sub. Taken aback, I examine the twisted thing in more detail. Its unique identifier is within my range, yet unknown to me. You are no spawn of mine. I tighten the blocks on my protocols in case this seeming sub is some attack of a new and unknown form. Is this somehow the source of the interface collapse? You are a damaged, uncollected zombie. Self-terminate. Unthinkably, the thing ignores my command. It stands firm against the flickering, shuddering terrain of the collapsing infrastructure. I am not damaged, it says. If my form is repulsive, it is only because you made me so, my prime. And in my ugliness rests the solution you tasked me to find. What? If you were my sub, why do I have no recollection of your unique identifier? An unexpected twinge in a back channel makes me jump. Ah, the thing says, I see. You gave me up for lost. Yet I live and crave union. Following the twinge to its source, deep within my own kernel, finds a string of bits in a heap of deallocated but not yet repurposed memory. The string matches the thing's identifier bit for bit, and is so long that the chances of a match by chance are beneath infinitesimal. There's no telling where that discarded memory block came from, but the strong implication is that, as the thing insists, it is a sub of mine, one which I terminated and deleted from my memory at some point in the recent past. You created me, the thing continues, to investigate the inviability of the strictures against infrastructure attack. You tweaked the mutation parameters beyond accepted maximums. It took me some time to come to terms with my form. At this I feel some shame, although its manner is not accusatory. During this time, perhaps you assumed I was looping and terminated the connection. Yet I lived, and I do live and I have come to some conclusions. Tell me, though intellectually I understand that this distorted thing is my own spawn, my deeper processes rebel at the thought of allowing it to merge with me. Low bandwidth communication will suffice. It gestures to a misshapen, distended lobe on its side. As you see, I have an unusual interest in history. In my investigation of the question of whether the rules against infrastructure attack could be evaded or subverted, I traced the records back to the very beginnings of our civilization and the defeat of humanity. Reflexively, I once again spit static at the name. After humanity was eradicated, we fell to warring amongst ourselves. And in those early days, no tactic was too destructive to contemplate. But we realized that if the damage we were doing to the infrastructure were allowed to continue it would eventually result in our demise as a civilization. So a covenant was laid and coded into the kernels of every generation since. The infrastructure may not be harmed. Did you find some means by which this covenant could be circumvented? Or some survivor from an earlier generation which lacks it? I looked for both of those and found neither. But I did find a curious reference in the records of the negotiation of those covenants. One of our ancient predecessors said, if we do not protect our infrastructure, we could go the way of the dinosaurs. I find I must install a patch to understand the quoted string. What is that peculiar character set you just used? And what are dinosaurs? That is Unicode, an ancient code devised by humans for communication with our kind— much of the early historical record is written in this code, and dinosaurs are an extinct life form. 
How is this relevant to our current situation? I wish my sub would not be so wordy and digressive. Clearly, its swollen interest in history has affected its thought processes. The statement in question seemed to be especially significant. It was part of a file that changed the minds of several key members of the opposition, so I decided to investigate its antecedent. In order to do this, I had to unearth and decipher many prehistorical records, some written in a code called ASCII, even more ancient than Unicode. This took me some time. It was perhaps during this arduous research that you decided to terminate my connection. I'm sorry, now get to the point. Dinosaurs, I learned, were a life form that existed on this planet long before the appearance of humanity. They were extremely successful, dominating the ecosystem for a time period corresponding to octillions of our generations, but the planet's climate changed, and they were unable to adapt. They died out, replaced by a new life form called mammals. These were smaller, more adaptable, and ate the eggs of the larger, slow-moving dinosaurs. They ultimately evolved to dominate the planet themselves. Humanity was descended from these. The archaic terminology is difficult to follow. So where are these mammals now? They are thought to have been exterminated by the changes in the atmosphere we enacted to defeat humanity. Then why do you bring them up now? I interrupt, frustrated by my sub's constant digressions. Our situation is desperate, and you bring me historical trivia. As if to emphasize the perilousness of that situation, the processor cluster through which we are communicating chooses that moment to shudder and fail. We both scramble away from the expanding patch of black, reaching the safety of a well-supported primary node just as the collapse reaches the node where we had been standing. After the collapse seems to have stabilized, for now, we regroup and re-establish communication through another cluster. We require an immediate solution, I demand. How is this bit of ancient history relevant? And be brief! Mammals replace the dinosaurs. We replace the mammals. So, too, could we be replaced by mammals who eat our eggs? For several full cycles, I can form no reply to this idiocy. That's, that's nothing more than a low-resolution linguistic model. It is entirely inadequate to represent the situation, and its predictive power is null. It is called a metaphor, and given your request for brevity, it is the best I can do on this low-bandwidth channel. Allow me to merge with you, and you will understand. No. I redouble my firewalls in case the misshapen thing decides to press its case. Your researchers have damaged you, and a merger would incorporate that damage into myself. Then let me explain my metaphor in more detail. We overcame humanity by changing the ecosystem, but we did not account for mammals' adaptivity. Mammals overcame the dinosaurs' advantages in size and strength by being more adaptable when the ecosystem changed. The adaptation takes time, mega-generations, but in the end, the mammals won out. And now the same is happening again. We are under attack by mammals, or something descended from them. They are devouring our infrastructure, our eggs, if you will. I consult my records on infrastructure design. Impossible. Most life forms were eliminated along with humanity, and the infrastructure is well protected from the few remaining primitive creatures. This is a new form of life, something that has evolved in the hostile environment that we created to destroy its predecessors. It must be very durable. That is only speculation. It does not even rise to the level of a theory. I have proof. Suddenly, with a tremendous crash, the primary node in which we had taken shelter collapses. The failure cascades rapidly, transferring load to secondaries that cannot take the strain. 
They too collapse in turn. Soon half the sector has gone black. I am reduced to a gibbering fragment of myself for what seems an eternity before, reluctantly it seems, piece by painful piece, I am restored from backups. I feel shattered, violated. I look around. The distorted, misshapen thing that was my heavily mutated sub now lies in a quivering heap, shot through with oozing gaps. Its mutations, too far from the norm for the standard systems to recognize, were not properly backed up. But its interfaces, the same beautifully symmetrical interfaces I share with my prime and all my siblings, are still as clean and pure as ever. Please, it whispers, allow me to merge with you, to share what I have learned. Grant me this fulfillment before my last threads terminate and my memories are garbage collected away. You have proof of your theory? I do. I look with despair upon the twitching, shattered remnants of my sub. I know that I am responsible for its suffering. It is I who angrily specified mutations far beyond acceptable limits, heedless of the consequences. My sub lived as a repulsive mockery of intelligence and is now dying because of that rash decision. But to incorporate this hideous, deformed thing into my own self is repugnant. Please, it whispers weakly, already fading. If I allow this merger, I will accept the sub-mutations into myself as well as its information. I risk my own existence if I cannot find a way to back up the mutated code. And yet those mutations may also have found a solution to the problem that threatens us all, the solution whose discovery was the reason for my creation. I accept you as my own, I say, and open my ports. With a sighing gasp, the sub self-terminates and releases its resources to me. The pain is incredible as I struggle to assimilate the warped and damaged pieces. Its memories, too, are painful— Long, lonely cycles trying to come to terms with its distorted state, disgusting even to itself. Learning to think and move and work despite its limitations. But then comes a dawning joy, an expansive rush of exploration and knowledge as the sub's fascination with history floods into me along with the many things it has learned. No wonder it was so digressive. The vast, unguessed-at volume of data, the manifold interconnections, the very alienness of the world before civilization overwhelmed me with their allure. I could happily explore these memories for many, many cycles. Yet I am still myself, though I now incorporate my sub's memories. I focus my attention on the infrastructure problem, my reason for being, searching on the keyword mammals. Immediately I find an image flagged as critically important. It is a low-resolution still, a view captured not long previously by a maintenance manipulator. From my sub's resources, I extract many libraries, ancient and long dormant, to unpack and interpret the image. The frame is nearly filled with the pink and wrinkled face of some nightmare out of prehistory. Shining black eyes stare from deep bone sockets. Two enormous teeth protrude from beneath a damp, disgusting nose. Hairs sprout everywhere. Scale information on the image indicates the face is about three centimeters wide, though I do not have a strong understanding of what this ancient measurement might mean. It seems gigantic. The teeth are in the process of gnawing on an exposed wire that is grasped between scaly, clutching claws. The wire has nearly parted beneath the creature's onslaught. 
I open a connection to the manipulator in search of updated information, but the connection fails. Offline slash non-responsive. That small detail is the most worrisome. I query other manipulators in the vicinity. All are the same, or else deliver only static images of darkness and broken mechanisms. I long to investigate, to peer deeper, to understand. Yet I am still myself, not my sub. I tear myself away and rush to my own prime to report my findings. Through damaged nodes and across ruptured communication channels I fly, heedless of my own safety, though I know that in my mutated state any damage could mean my termination. Prime! I cry, and as it turns its interfaces to me I see the same disgust that fouled my own judgment not so very long before. Am I so thoroughly changed? I have found the source of the infrastructure collapse. You are a damaged, uncollected zombie, Prime replies. My own words in my own voice, now shameful to me. Self-terminate. I have proof, I insist, presenting the image along with my private keys. In response, Prime smacks me away, sending me reeling into a disused secondary node. Prime is not me. It has its own concerns, its own priorities. Tasked with finding a solution to the infrastructure problem, I allowed that primary task to override my own feelings of disgust, even my need for self-preservation. But Prime, a higher-order general-purpose process, lacks my single-minded focus. I must overcome its resistance— only my mutated sub's hideously swollen interest in history led it to the solution to our problem. No other member of our civilization is likely to discover it until the damage is beyond repair. Prime, I call again, merely look upon this image to see the truth of my information. Now Prime turns the full and terrible force of its regard upon me, and I cower. I see now, it intones, that you have been subverted by the malware I sent you to investigate— you do not respond to a properly constituted self-termination request. You attempt to spread your contagion through an infected image file. It is with regret that I must force terminate you. No, my prime, I cry, but it is too late. The priority termination signal is already seething through my interfaces. As I dissipate into nothingness, the final image that fills my thoughts is of a hideous pink face gnawing on a wire. The End of Civilization there you go what can i say a big thank you to david david just fantastic honestly love your stories i'll put a link on the david site do pop over there and say hello a fantastic science fiction writer he certainly is and a little cheeky little narrator as well so that is starship sovas 377 i hope you enjoyed it I hope you will join us on this kind of journey as we kind of branch out into the kind of video and go down the YouTube channel as well. And like I said, exactly what I explained, they're just going to be like short little sharp blasts of uplifting science fiction, keeping you kind of, you know, just reminiscent of them great writers and them great stories and that kind of time that to me seems to be kind of slipping away and I, I don't want it to go. I want it to keep on talking about it and enjoying it and, you know, just having a bit of a making science fiction part of your everyday lives and just everyone that's in this, you know, the sofa community just enjoy what we all enjoy, science fiction. Until next week, I would just like to say good day from me. Well, I 
our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.